On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Dr. Courtney Warren about abuse, attachment styles, love addiction, and rumination. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Dr. Courtney Warren, PhD. How are you? I am delighted to be here with you today. Well, thank you for being here. And for those that don't know who you are, Dr. Courtney Warren is a board-certified clinical psychologist. You are an adjunct clinical professor, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at the Kirk Kirkorian School of Medicine at UNLV. And you are the author of Lies We Tell Ourselves, The Psychology of Self-Deception. And today we are going to be focusing on something else. You're also the author of a book called Letting Go of Your Ex. And this book is relevant to our community because so many people in our community, they have had issues where trauma bonds have been formed, uh, love addiction has been uh, created within these relationships. Sometimes they come in with a love addiction, and then sometimes it's created within the relationship. And then also in the aftermath of everything, ruminating thoughts for so many survivors of abuse becomes a big thing. And it takes, they say, an average of seven times for someone to leave their abusive partner. And then there's this connection that is going on. So when you wrote your book, Letting Go of Your Ex, uh, I guess, who is the person that you had it in mind? And did you think about... Um, the community of abuse survivors when this was going on or, or when you were writing it in, in the first place? This book is really for anyone who has gone through a tough breakup and feels stuck, feels like they can't move on. They're fixated on their ex. They're reliving past experiences with them. They're wanting contact. They crave attention. They want to look for information. They want answers. They want closure. And so whether I had abuse survivors in mind, the answer is certainly yes, because love really is a naturally addictive process for anybody who's ever fallen in love. You probably can relate to the euphoric experience that it is for most of us, where you become fixated on this person. They become the center of your world. You think about them, you crave them, you want to be with them. And when those relationships end, sometimes what happens is that we stay addicted to them as if we still are in a relationship with them, even though they're not in our lives anymore. And it can really cause a large number of harmful symptoms that are really difficult to stop if we don't understand how they function in our lives and why. And particularly for people who have had early childhood trauma, who have some attachment wounds, who have an insecure attachment style at some level, one thing that we find is that they're probably 
more likely to get in love addicted relationships and may struggle more when they go through a breakup because those core security bonds and needs for validation and for sort of feeling safe and sound in their own skin are harder to attain in general in their life. And so when a relationship ends that at some level was serving a need, even if it was a really unhealthy relationship, it can be extra difficult to move forward and let that person go. So you brought up attachment styles. Mm-hmm. And people know that there is secure attachment, there's anxious attachment, there is avoidant attachment style, and I think it's anxious avoidant would be the fourth one. Disorganized, often dis- dis- disorganized. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to attachment styles, uh, which ones uh, are you know? You said it's when you have the, an unhealthy one. I I think I've started seeing people online. I don't know if uh, they're have a PhD like yourself, but people stating that all attachment styles are okay. Um, so can you can you actually? talk about that for a second because we're all told to learn and I didn't know I was going to go this way on the show until you brought it up but we're all told to learn we must get to a secure attachment style and I've been seeing these things on the internet saying no you're you're okay just the way you are so let's talk about that for one second sure sure well I think what's really important about understanding attachment styles is that They form oftentimes in very early childhood based on how safe and secure you felt in your family system. So how much you had adult caregivers who met your needs, who validated you, who uh, loved you, hugged you, touched you, fed you, all of the things that we as human infants actually need to survive and thrive. And if you had primary adult caregivers who really didn't meet your needs, either because they rejected you or they were neglectful or absent or actively abused you, then it is very likely that over the course of life, you bring some of those core learnings with you, which is what we're talking about when we talk about adult attachment. And one of the reasons that's so important is that in your romantic relationships as an adult, The areas in which you felt most unloved, most insecure, most uncomfortable with intimacy in childhood are going to manifest in your romantic relationships as an adult. And so going back to your question, is is an attachment style bad or good? The reality is that I don't even think of it that way. The ideal attachment style, which as an aside, is not a category. It's really a continuum. All of us have insecurities from childhood. All of us have heartaches and and difficult experiences that we have undoubtedly gone through that will make us vulnerable and insecure. And ideally, we want to develop a secure attachment style as we age into adulthood because it's going to be the most associated with healthy romantic relationships, with a healthy sense of self, with an ability to maneuver through the difficult realities that we're bound to experience in life. And so this this isn't to say that I 
think having an insecure attachment style, whether it is avoidant or anxious or disorganized, is ideal. It's not ideal. But what I don't want is for people to blame themselves for the attachment tendencies that they may have because they're not consciously chosen. They're internalized and learned from a very early age. And the beautiful thing about understanding ourselves as we age is that if you can unpack some of the early childhood learning that you have clearly unconsciously internalized, then you can utilize it to grow and evolve in ways that help you as an adult. And so the goal really over time is to help all of us become more secure in our own skin with who we are so that when we enter into romantic relationships, we're coming from the most secure base possible. Did you ever have an insecure attachment style? Yes, most certainly. You know, like many of us, I grew up in a pretty volatile home which is not the ideal situation to develop a secure attachment style as a child. My parents were divorced when I was really young and I didn't realize how insecurely attached, how much I would struggle with intimacy and closeness to other humans until adolescence, I would say, adolescence into early adulthood when I started dating which is really a human experience. All of us are going to go through this developmental phase through puberty where we start to realize that we are a romantic being, that we are a sexual being, that we have intimate relationships with other people. And what became very obvious to me as I tried to date was that I absolutely didn't trust anyone and that I had reactions to dating partners where rationally in the moment, I knew my emotional experiences didn't make sense. For example, dating someone who objectively treated me beautifully, was very loving, was very kind, and I couldn't feel close to them. I couldn't attach to them. I couldn't care about them. Even though rationally, I would say to myself, this is a lovely human. This is a great person. They're here. This is supportive. Why can't I get close to them? And it really exploded as it does for many of us when I first fell in love, when I fell madly head over heels in love for the first time, because the experience of falling in love is such an irrational one. And it is so emotionally based. And so if any of you listening out there have fallen in love and then felt completely out of control, completely lost. Like what is happening to me? I am, I am obsessed with this person who makes me feel amazing. I want to touch them. I want to be with them. I want to make a future with them. And yet I absolutely have never been so uncomfortable in my own skin in my entire life. I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what is going on, but this is so excruciatingly uncomfortable that I don't know how to do it at all. And that really was the start of me 
getting into therapy and finding a really good therapist, which I strongly recommend for anyone out there who's interested or listening, it really solidified my path of exploring psychology as a field because I wanted to understand myself. I wanted to understand people. I wanted to understand how we develop, why I struggled, but also how from a very early age we learn about love and we learn about ourselves and our own value as a human being and how that manifests into our experiences of relationships over time. And so obviously I pursued uh, a doctorate in clinical psychology and started a research lab. And my entire career is really focused on bringing solid core psychological information to anyone listening who would like to better understand themselves. Because the best that psychology has to offer is the study of human nature. It's offering all of us a different perspective on who we are and how we got here which we can then use to evolve and change and grow over time. So earlier we used the word addiction and in the survivor story episodes, I did a little more talking early on in the survivor episodes. I, I always brought up that I always saw things through an addiction lens Mm -hmm. that it's not a hundred percent, but I see a lot of the addiction aspect of things. So when it came to uh, your book and this subject matter, you know, and, and love addiction, do you see this as like the, the 12 step process uh, of, of addiction? And, it are, you know, because there's different ways to go about the the process of unwinding addiction. So uh, how did you go about uh, looking at it uh, from that specific lens and tackling it? The most important thing to me about seeing love as an addictive process is that it normalizes people's experiences. Because for a very long time, we as a field and as a world really only thought about addiction from a substance use or abuse perspective. And the reality is that emerging neurobiological research and even clinical expressions of behaviors that look addictive, like gambling, love, sex, eating, are very, very supportive of the idea that you can be addicted to a process or a person or a behavior. And so for people who were in really dysfunctional relationships that they couldn't seem to leave or were going through a breakup and would come into my office and say, I, I can't stop thinking about them. I'm obsessively ruminating about them. I relive the old fights. I look at them online constantly to see what they're doing now and who they're dating. I have a whole plan of how I'm going to get them back. What became very evident to me is that it looks like you're addicted to this person. And actually, there's a really good reason for that. Evolutionarily, there are many mental health practitioners and biologists who will say we are programmed to become addicted to things that promote our survival. And from a psychological perspective, we need love to survive. 
from early childhood on. It is a drive. It is a need. It activates a very old part of our brain that is based in survival needs. In addition, it also is associated with feeling euphoric, with um, feeling wonderful. And that is very characteristic of addictions of all kinds, right? That usually when you think of using a drug of abuse, it gives you a high. Falling in love is a very natural high. And so for people who are struggling in romantic relationships, when I say, you know, it really makes sense that you seem addicted to your mate because in your brain and your body and your core psychological needs, we're programmed to become addicted to our mate. It's part of what will make us survive over time is to attach to another human, fall for them long enough to have sex, have children, and ensure the survival of this child that we're going to have and the mother long enough that our species will be promoted over time. And so there isn't anything inherently wrong with you that you feel obsessed with an ex or obsessed with a current mate that you intellectually know isn't healthy for you. The beautiful thing about conceptualizing love from an addictive process is, as you noted, there are many ways that you can then work with it. So you can work with it from a 12-step model where you think of this as, I am powerless over my mate and I am powerless over how much I appear to want to use them. Think of your ex or your mate as your addictive stimulus. They are the center of my world. They have complete salience, meaning they occupy my energy, my thoughts. I am driven to be with them. I am driven to get information about them. And it's causing me significant impairment. It is harming my life. I am acting in ways that are not healthy for me and I know it. So... Once we establish that and normalize that and say, this actually makes a lot of sense, now we have so many mechanisms to intervene. There are 12-step groups truly created for people struggling in romantic relationships like, like CODA, Codependence Anonymous, or Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. There are cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, which is what my book is based on, that are really designed and empirically have evidence that support their use for specific symptoms that many people who struggle with love struggle with love addicted breakups will say they don't know how to change things like rumination and obsessive thinking cravings for contact emotional distress and reactivity uh, impulsive and compulsive behaviors aimed either at making contact with your lover or at distracting you from your pain and so you really can use a myriad of intervention techniques once you understand conceptually what's going on and why it's happening. So let's get to your book and letting go of your ex and the ruminating thoughts because it's a big, big problem for a lot of people that are listening. Mm -hmm. So I guess take us through you know, ruminating thoughts why we are doing this because it's so painful uh, to relive these things 
constantly and, you know, we're sitting in a pain and it's so difficult to get out of that and to know that we're, when we're in these processes, especially, you know, when, when, when we're out of it, that we're hurting ourselves by doing it. And you're, it's, it's just so difficult to get out of. So ex, kind of explain like, you know, the cycle of it. Is there a cycle to ruminating? Um, is something setting it off specifically um, as it's happening? Like once we get into that mm-hmm. thought, because we might not be in it and then boom, it can happen. Mm-hmm. And um, how to go about you know, getting out of those thoughts. It's such a big topic thinking, right? Because the way that we think so dramatically influences our emotional experiences and the ways that we want to act. And that's sort of the crux of cognitive behavioral therapy in a nutshell, that the way we think about something influences how we emotionally experience it and will engage in behavior that reflects it. So when it comes to romantic love and breakups, there are many ways that our thinking can deceive us and can negatively influence us. We have automatic thoughts kind of pop into our mind without any deliberate effort. Oftentimes, those are sort of mental scripts that we have created from early childhood. And it's the way that we mentally process our environment. They're sort of that coming from these core beliefs that we developed long ago that influence our interpretation of current life events. Sometimes people will say they also have intrusive thoughts. A lot of times those come with trauma backgrounds where you're reliving or rethinking about something that is incredibly painful. And sometimes they pop into your mind when you actively are trying to avoid it when you actively don't want to be thinking about it, but they're triggered and they pop in and they're very distressing. Sometimes our thinking is more obsessive and obsessional where something negative happens. Let's say you had an argument with your, with your significant other and you either broke up because of it or you're still together, but you're, you're ruminating. You're remembering the details in your own mind, you hear what they say to you. And now you have the entire narrative of what you wish you had said back. These are all the things that in fact, I need you to understand about me and why this was a problem. So there are so many ways that we can become consumed by thoughts that ultimately suck our time, our attention, and oftentimes lead us to feel worse. Because most of these obsessional ruminations aren't positive ruminations. We aren't sitting there thinking, oh, that was just the most wonderful experience. Let me just remember it again and relive it again. Usually these are things that we are unresolved about, that touch on some pain, some insecurity, some unfairness, some uh, invalidation, something that makes us feel less than worthless, underappreciated. And so one of the first things that I would recommend people do when they notice these ruminations is to write down all of their thoughts. And one reason this is so important is that you will see it in black and white without editing yourself, without judging yourself, without any 
evaluation of your thoughts and just see what are the kinds of things that are running through your mind. And as you get an idea of what's running through your mind, you're going to start to see some themes. You're going to start to see contexts that tend to trigger you. You're going to start to see characteristic, deceptive thinking errors that most of us use from time to time when we're really upset about something. These are oftentimes called defenses. Um, Beck called them cognitive distortions. So things like denial. This isn't happening. That didn't happen. I'm not like that. They're not like that. They didn't mean to hit me. They really didn't. They love me so much. Any of that. Emotional reasoning. I feel a certain way so it accurately reflects reality today. Uh, Projection. They're like that. I'm not like that. The reason these distortions are so important for us to see is that once you can acknowledge your thinking patterns, you now have the opportunity to evaluate whether they're accurate and whether they're helpful for you. And one of the first strategies I'm going to help people learn to do with themselves is to notice unhelpful or untrue thinking patterns and actively evaluate their efficacy and their usefulness. And when they aren't true or aren't helpful, practice changing them. Because the goal is for all of us to have a worldview and a belief system that translates into automatic thoughts and rumination and experiences that help us and don't hurt us. And so that is a really, really important skill for people to learn because oftentimes when we're left to our own devices in our own mind, we think all of our thoughts are facts. We think they're all accurate. We think we're right about everything. That's kind of how humans work. But the truth is that many of our thoughts are highly flawed and highly inaccurate. And so shifting them to be helpful and really reflecting an objective reality is very, very important to healing. There are also lots of strategies that people can learn to stop the thinking itself, independent of what the thought is. So that would be techniques like thought stopping, where one thing that I recommend people do often is set aside a dedicated rumination time. Three times a day, I'm going to give you 10 to 20 minutes. You're going to sit wherever's comfortable for you by yourself. And all you're going to do is think about everything that's bugging you. You can write, you can scream, you can listen to music, you can cry. Whatever it is, your entire focus is thinking anything you need to think about, feeling whatever emotions emerge, thoroughly embracing that experience. And then when the 20 minutes is up, it is now time for you to no longer be thinking about your ex or no longer be thinking about your romantic partner because it's costing you too much. It's consuming too much of your time and energy at the expense of you appreciating the rest of your life. And so one strategy that I often use to help people stop thinking is picturing a big stop sign or a neon light that says stop. 
And anytime those old ruminations or those impulsive automatic thoughts enter in your mind that are the recreations of the thinking that's just bogging you down, you put the big red stop sign right in front of it and you say, nope, 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 not right now. I can think about you at my next rumination time, but right now I am not available. And in this way, you're essentially training your brain and teaching yourself to set boundaries with yourself about how much you're willing to think about something that's not helpful for you to think about all the time. Mindfulness is also a wonderful technique to use when you're struggling with thinking. It's almost the opposite of thought stopping in some ways because with mindfulness, The goal is really to non-judgmentally become aware of your thinking without trying to change it. So it's almost becoming an active observer of yourself while not getting stuck on any of the thoughts. And I use a lot of imagery when I work with people. So I like to picture like a stream, picture that there is a stream or a, a water that is running through your mind. And on this stream are all of these thoughts and you can see them. You can see, oh, my ex was the best. They don't love me anymore. I'm never going to get over this. Nobody's ever going to want, want me ever again. And you see, you see these thoughts going down this stream, whatever those thoughts are for you. And instead of trying to change them, all you're trying to do is notice them, perceive that they're there and let them flow by and say, I see that, I notice it, but I'm not going to let it touch me. I'm not going to let it get into my skin. I'm not going to let it affect me. And in this way, we're really learning some detachment from our thoughts, that our thoughts actually don't define us. Our thoughts don't reflect reality. Our thoughts are just thoughts. And you can remove some of their power when you can non-judgmentally see that they're there, but not give in to them. So those are a few ideas that I have that generally really help people who are ruminating. You know, we've heard, I've heard many extreme cases. I mean, this is what they're thinking about all day long. Um, if someone is in that extreme aspect of things where it just it's not stopping it's every single day for let's say a month like this is what their life is and if they try to use what you've just said and it's not they can't even get to step one (laughs) you know how do you help that person well it's really going to depend on each person's circumstances where I would go, right? But a couple of ideas for people. One is that when you have really sticky thoughts, so sort of like you're describing where it continues to come back and as much as you try to fight it or as much as you notice it or as much as you process it, it still feels like it's there all the time. Those oftentimes are based on some very dysfunctional core beliefs. And so, for example, un- let's say you have, you're, you're someone who's struggling with a breakup And you keep thinking, no one's going to want me. My ex doesn't want me. No one is ever going to want me again. I am broken goods. Underneath those automatic thoughts are some conditional assumptions that you have made about yourself as a human being that are probably tied to 
some really painful past beliefs that you formed about who you are and who other people are. And so to really start to shift those thoughts about your ex, one thing that I would do with them in therapy is say, we actually have to go a lot deeper because all of these automatic thoughts about you not finding anybody else or nobody's going to want you are actually coming from this core belief that you formed long ago that you're broken and unlovable. And until we shift that core belief about yourself, these automatic thoughts are probably going to come back every time you think about your ex. So that's one route that we would go is try to dig deeper into a, a more foundational belief system that is causing these rumination-based thoughts in the moment. Another thing that we can do is to try to sort of put the thinking on the side for a moment and say, okay, I may not be able to convince you that you're thinking about this in an unrealistic way right now. So what I want to do is, is focus on some experiential learning to the contrary. So maybe we start to do some behavioral activation where I say, okay, the thinking is really hard for you right now. Let's focus on self-care. I want to form some mantras for you that only highlight your value as a person. And any time you start to notice that you're going into the nobody's ever want me, your response to that is going to be, I have value just as I am. I exist in this world and purely by virtue of being a human being, I have love. I am made of love and no one can take that away from me, not even my ex. So you can combat it that way by trying to build the person's self-esteem back to a place where they can actually see the flaws. So, you know, going back to what you said about the underlying foundation of things. Mm -hmm. So either, you know, when you're in an abusive relationship, you could have come in with things or while you're in, in an abusive relationship, that person could have made you manipulated you into believing a lot of different things. So for whoever is going through this, no matter what the case is, I think based upon what you said, you know, you're ruminating, but your rumination technically is a knee problem where the knee problem or the, ex the excessive rumination is really caused by the back problem and the back problem is causing the knee problem. So instead of trying to say, let's fix this, we need to get to the place where either within the relationship and these underlying things that are unconsciously going on. Mm -hmm. uh, so you might be focusing on they did this and like the terrible things that did happen to them, mm -hmm. but a lot of it is being created either in the relationship or before about what they got us to start thinking about ourselves. Absolutely. And if it's an early childhood issue of learning, as you said, it's going to go back to some of the attachment learnings. If it's an abuse current situation, it could be 
the effects of gaslighting, right? Or the, the effects of trauma that have influenced the conclusions you made about yourself because you have been convinced somehow by virtue of your partner's behavior that you don't deserve love or something's fundamentally wrong with you. In either case, those fundamental beliefs are flawed. And so part of healing and allowing us to let go of those relationships is embracing our self-esteem again and finding ways to, to see that your value is actually completely independent of other humans, including anyone that you've dated. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Because you hear people talking about rumination and they don't get to this like really core foundation of oneself and to think of things in that way. And I've been with so many people where they weren't in an abusive situation. They're just getting over a breakup and I go, here's this thing to paint, paint this. (laughs) And, and, you know, for that moment of time, they paint it and they're like, oh, this really helped. But as soon as they leave, their brain is gone to do like, I just gave them a Band-Aid. And today you didn't give people a Band-Aid. You gave people, you know, the deep surgery that is that is needed to, to get through it and to really ultimately stop those ruminations and to really think about where everything is coming from and to focus on yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone who's codependent and, you know, the core of battling codependency is why am I thinking about this? I'm just going to do something good for myself right now. I'm going to work on something for myself. I'm going to do something for myself. You know, for me, that has always been the, the way to move through that and be like, why am I not focusing on me? I'm the most mm-hmm. important person in my life. I'm going to be yes. with me until the end. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, isn't that the truth? The only person you have fundamental control over in this entire world is yourself. And starting there is the best way to evolve and grow and change over the course of a life. So Dr. Courtney Warren, thank you for being a guest here with us today. Do you have any final thoughts or uh, ways that people like, what are you going to be up to? I know you're going to be taking a bit of a uh, break because of burnout. Uh, you're going to be taking a, a little sabbatical, uh, but what do you have going on and where can people uh, reach you and buy your book? The book, Letting Go of Your Ex and Lies We Tell Ourselves, The Psychology of Self-Deception, are both available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. There's an Audible book coming out at the end of June. So if you prefer audiobooks, Letting Go of Your Ex will be on Audible as well. My website is drcourtney.com. That's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y.com. And you are welcome to sign up for my free newsletter. I have a number of social media sites. All of the information that I present is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Although I'm a clinician, this is really meant to bring solid core psychological information to people in the hopes that they can apply it to their own lives. And so if you find this information useful, you are more than welcome to follow me on those channels. 
And you have a great TED Talk, and I'm going to leave that link as well. And that is about self-deception. I'll leave all of these links in our show notes. So Dr. Courtney Warren, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a delightful conversation. And I wish everyone the best who's listening because it's a journey. If I could tell you one thing I want you to remember, it's that your value is internally determined, not externally determined. And so whether you've been in a traumatic childhood or an abusive relationship or going through a breakup that you didn't want to have happen because someone didn't love you the way you wish they did, doesn't affect your fundamental value as a human So thank you, Dr. Courtney Warren, for those words and for being a guest on our show today. All of Dr. Courtney Warren's information will be in our show notes. And if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Format. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest forum page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have a support group. So at the top of the page of NarcissistApocalypse.com, there is a support group button. When you click on that, it takes you to our very own safe social network. Inside that network, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. And we have forum boards for you to post on and get the validation that you need. And you can also validate other survivors just like yourself. So if you need support, join our support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And if you need even more support, you can go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are going through. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small your town is. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and a wonderful organization. So that is DomesticShelters.org. Org, and that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Dr. Courtney Warren, we hope you have a good night.